from the Samira Foundation, this is Demystifying NMO and MOG, where we bring together the world's foremost experts, the doctors dedicated to studying it, and the patients who live with it every day, with support from Genetech. Welcome back for another episode of Demystifying NMO and MOG. A few weeks ago, we talked about navigating work while living with a rare disease. Now, today, we're going to zoom out a little bit and take a look at the macro view of this topic. To do that, we're going to be talking to Dr. Farah Mateen, who is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. She specializes in demyelinating diseases, and she looks at them through the lenses of global health, humanitarian and natural disasters, and the social determinants of health. Her work has focused on raising awareness of neurological disorders, but also increasing access to care in austere environments. This year, she published a paper called Understanding the Employment Impact of Neuromyelitis Spectrum Disorder in the USA. In it, her and her team began to investigate the long-term socioeconomic impact of NMO. Dr. Mateen, thank you for being here with us. We appreciate you sitting down to take your time and uh, go over some important issues. So can you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. Um, I'm a neurologist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and I'm subspecialized in neuroimmunology. So that means a neuromyelitis optica and multiple sclerosis and related disorders. And my PhD was in public health and international public health. So I've been on faculty at Mass General and Harvard for the last 10 years now. Um, I'm originally from Saskatchewan in Canada, in Western Canada. And I did post-medical school training in um, the United States. So I've been here for quite some time, but I also worked in a variety of countries globally. Yeah, that was one of the interesting things that I found about your work. You've done a lot of work in developing countries, and your, your research seems to really be focusing more and more on the social issues around illness and chronic rare diseases and chronic illnesses. How did you go down that path? Yeah, I've always loved both aspects of things. I've always loved neuroimmunology and NMO. And when I was a resident, that was right when they were discovering the aquaporin for antibody. And it was a really exciting time to be part of the field. And at the same time, I always have, you know, even before medical school, been very passionate about social determinants of health, even though they weren't called that at the time, but thinking about vulnerable populations and access to care, health equity, um, both at a national level, but also globally. And so when I liked both of them, it wasn't immediately apparent, I think, in the field that you could merge those or look at those inter intersections. For me, they were relatively obvious. I thought there were a lot of issues within. Um, and it took probably a good 10 to 15 years before the field was really, I'd say, invested in those topics like health equity and neuroimmunology. I think that's taken a little longer to come of age, but I think we're finally, mm -hmm. finally here. It was interesting to see that that uh, the progression, the, the way your research has focused on those areas. So recently you had a poster at Actrums, I believe it was, on NMO and employment. Can you tell us a little bit more just of some of those findings? Yeah, so neuromyelitis optica, as you know, is a disabling condition for many people, and it's also a disease that predominantly affects young women. And we know in the United States that um, this often affects people of color, more so than, for example, multiple sclerosis. And uh, meanwhile, there are social and demographic and other and economic issues that are affecting 
these same populations, so young women, people of color. And particularly during COVID-19, we learned that there were disproportionate impacts on certain subgroups when there's an external stressor. So NMO is also, you know, an external stressor on things like employment and livelihood and income. And um, I looked at the literature, there was almost nothing reported. There was a very small kind of subsection of one paper that addressed it. And I think 44 people. And I thought, well, this is clinically in, in my practice, you know, an issue. And it makes sense that this should be sorted out. Is there unemployment and NMO, underemployment, wage loss, income loss? What about caregivers? And you know, how are we going to understand this issue better? So that, that was the goal of the work. And um, what we wanted to do in this case was go directly to patients themselves or people with NMO themselves and ask them, what is their experience without making assumptions? Like, what is your pre-NMO experience? What's your post-diagnosis experience? And um, once we'll get more into this, but we started with focus groups. To, to try and get at some of the nuances that may not come out in a survey and then to help develop a survey so that it accurately captures um, the, some of the things that we may not think of as clinicians and try to encompass all of the various um, details that can impact employment in the United States and then ultimately globally. When I read the paper, I found it really interesting that it was really more so a conversation. It wasn't just patients going through a checklist, the question aspect of it, I think really allowed you to get a better sense of the reality of what a patient was living with. So I definitely enjoyed that aspect of, of it being reported. Thank you. So with your work shining a light on the impact of NMO and, and MOG, what, what do you hope to learn from studies like these? So the ultimate goal is to help people with NMO as the you know, current patient group, but also future patients who may be diagnosed, um, what works, what are some things that are going well for patients, and not just to focus on the negatives and the problems, also to figure out mitigating factors or supportive structures or um, social determinants of health can really go both ways. So there are some things that are negative, um, but there are also some things that are modifiable. And then there are also some things that are positive. So if we have lessons learned from certain people or certain employers, situations, why not try to expand and replicate those for other patients? Um, and then to a lesser extent, we also wanted to um, highlight issues around NMO for employers. And, you know, if somebody works with somebody, employs somebody with NMO, where do they turn to for advice or information? There's a decent amount of information in the multiple sclerosis community, but as you know, MS and NMO are distinct diseases. They have important differences. And if you are employing someone with NMO and you want information, um, there's really very little out there. So that was also kind of a secondary goal. And then also, I think there's a goal to educate healthcare workers and um, potentially policymakers as well, so they can start realizing there's an issue. Because uh, you know, we may know as patients and clinicians and healthcare workers that there's um, employment issues in NMO, but if nobody's ever documented it or uh, discussed it, if there's nothing written down, it's really hard to make a, a policy level change. Right. In those discussions with the patients, what were you finding? What were some of the main barriers that they were facing? So we asked 
Um, and this was the, the qualitative side of things. We asked people to discuss what their major challenges were or barriers specifically to employment. And um, the main things that came out were not what I actually expected. So because, you know, we think of NMO as optica, myelitis, I mean, you think blindness obviously would be a major concern. And, and to some extent it was, um, but there were also um, a lot of invisible symptoms. So the way um, that I ended up disaggregating what people were telling me was physical invisible symptoms. That's number one. And that included visual symptoms, also included things like spinal cord symptoms, like, um, for example, if you have to climb ladders or if you have to um, walk into work, there may be um, those aspects of, you know, inability to physically do the job, but there's also a lot of invisible symptoms, um, things like bladder control, fatigue was a major one, pain um, there's also um, aspects of what we call mental health capacity, just the uncertainty of the diagnosis and prognosis and whether today was going to be a good day or not. Um, cognitive aspects came up uh, a number of times, which is in some ways not what I was expecting because NMO is not really thought of as a cognitive um, mm -hmm. condition. Um, having said that, there are treatments that have cognitive impact. There may also be a cognitive component that's not well articulated in the field. And then the final issue is around negative perceptions and stigma and um, some of the perceptions of people with NMO about how they're viewed in the workplace, whether those are the true views of their coworkers or not, it was the perception of the patient and how, how they're being seen and all of the different things that people do to try and mitigate those feelings um, came up during the conversations as well about, um, we had somebody say that they go to work an hour earlier just so they don't have anyone watch them walk in um, or some people who try to have their office closer to a washroom and some of the things that um, employers could address if, if they only knew. Yeah, and you had touched on it a little bit before you were saying about NMO traditionally has uh, affects populations that are that are female and people of color. So it just seems now they have this entire new layer of, of challenges and um, systemic barriers that they have to overcome. So it was interesting to, to read about that and see how they were trying to navigate some of those issues. Can you tell us more about the burden of treatment affects someone's ability to work? That was a big issue with that was identified and that you spoke about in the paper. As you know, there are multiple different FDA-approved treatments for NMO, and there are also some that are used off-label uh, relatively frequently. And in order to separate this out, we looked at the acute treatment of NMO, so early in the time of diagnosis when there may be uh, more emergency therapies, so having hospitalizations, um, having, uh, in some cases, IV, IVIG or steroids or plasma exchange or even just the acute rehabilitative needs. That turned out to be a, a major burden for several people. Um, one person in our study said that she was admitted for 37 days. So that's the over a month where you can't be at work. And that was an immediate sudden absence that had an, a work impact. Um, there are other patients who have recurring uh, infusions. So some people get IVIG recurrently. Some of the infusions are every two weeks. That may change in the near future, but um, having these recurrent infusions can be a burden for some patients. 
Other people have talked about side effects or complications of their treatment. So one person had um, uh, deep venous thrombosis and another person said that she needed 15 specialists for her care, which wow. um, she basically said that's a full-time job. And, and I think that's true, you know, so to have, have this sort of, and it depends, you know, this is where social determinants of health get involved too. It depends where you live, how far you are from a, a specialist care. Do you have someone to drive you? Do you need to take the whole day off? Can you get a virtual visit? Uh, a lot of folks talked about steroids and there's a whole paragraph in the paper dedicated to steroids and the mood and the impact of just like side effects and insomnia and some people reported being anger <laughs> angry and the emotional right. just changes your ability to deal with like normal day-to-day stressors um, someone said steroids are the devil I and mean, we had a lot of very negative <laughs> they're kind of the you know the double-edged sword and they tend to work, but they also have side effects, particularly if you're on them chronically. So we have a whole section dedicated, which could have been longer when I was writing it. But the other thing that people talked about was just the burden of organization and planning. And depending on the job that you have, we had folks who were school teachers or who were working in certain engagements where they had to be there from let's say eight to five. Um, and it was just impossible for them to go to certain aspects of their health care because they only got so many days off or once they exceeded that, it really impacted their employment and and the need to organize everything so far in advance was just itself a job. So there's multiple different examples. But yeah, it, that was one of the things I found really interesting was I got sick in April of, of 2015, and I had just moved to the state capital like six yeah. months earlier. And I had lived in a very rural area. My county had 50,000 people. And my wife and I had always had the discussion about what would have happened if you got stuck up there. I think I was hour and a half from from Pittsburgh, which would have been like the, the in Western Pennsylvania, it's the, the major mm-hmm. medical city. Right. Just that geography and how it plays into access is is really scary. Yeah, I think that we tried in our our study, the qualitative study, we have patients from I think it was um 17 different, I can't remember the number of states, but it was definitely well over the number of 10 states. Mm-hmm. And for our survey, um, we're trying to get people from you know, more than half the U.S. states, and we weren't specific to the Boston region. So we have people from all major geographic regions of the U.S. Some are rural, some are suburban, some are urban. It was interesting to see, you know, some people had major barriers to care based on geography, and some people didn't. And it just, you know, we know that the U.S. healthcare system is a very uneven entity, and and there are a lot of aspects of rural care that are suboptimal, but that's not universally true. Some rural people have great care. So it's just a matter, um, I don't want to say luck of the draw, but there is a little bit of stochasticism in right. getting good NMO care. And I think that's where some of the foundations are, are really trying to be helpful so that no matter where you live in the U.S., you can still access uh, an expert. Right. Trying to, trying to help connect those dots. How did time to diagnosis play into things for uh, employment challenges for people? Yeah, we did ask that question specifically. The longer you have until you get your clear diagnosis, the harder it can be. 
Um, several patients reported that they were misdiagnosed as MS. So that I think that's a fairly common scenario where mm -hmm. they got a diagnosis, but it wasn't quite right. Uh, several people had said they were considered hysterical or they had a vitamin deficiency came up. And one person said, um, he or she said they were back and forth with neurologists before the NMOSD diagnosis was rendered. And that there was an interplay between being African-American, being female and having NMOSD. So one person said they needed six hospital stays before they got the diagnosis. Some people went ahead and told their family and friends and coworkers they have MS. And then it turns out they didn't have MS. They had to go back right. and say MO. And then a lot of times people would get the response like, what's that? Because I think it's not as well known. It's not as common as MS. And then one person said that she had a, a triple disadvantage by which she meant that gender, race, and then navigating the medical system with a rare disease. Some African-American women said they were dismissed by their physician, not all, but some said that. And then one man said that he went through hell just trying to figure out whether he had NMO or not. And as you know, NMO is 90% or 85 to 90% female. So actually right. being a man with NMO is, is rare. So you mm -hmm. have a rare presentation of a rare disease. And so people may not be automatically thinking of that. Right. Again, speaking from personal experience, I, I, it took like from the onset of my symptoms, true onset of symptoms, two weeks, they were like, okay, you have NMO, but it would be a total in, of 18 months, I think it was, before they actually figured out I was MOG. Okay. Um, you hear a lot of those stories of people with MS and they are being treated for NMS unsuccessfully. And then finally they come to the realization that it's NMO. So my story was similar to that 18 months of, of treatments that were not as effective as they could have been. Fortunately, they weren't necessarily detrimental. So yeah, that, that the time to diagnosis story is, is, is it, it's one that really sucks for a lot of people for, for lack of better phrasing. It's, it's yeah. insane. Yeah, I can understand that. And um, I think that's why, you know, podcasts like this and more education direct to the public and direct mm. to patients. Sometimes people will figure out on their own they had NMO <laughs> and then they right. said, should I be checked for that? You know, So I think that people in the public are very intelligent and smart and they're consumers of information online. And so having good information out there is really important too. You know, there are a lot of neuroimmunologists in the U.S., but they're probably not distributed in a way that they're needed. Um, neuroimmunology as a fellowship is still newish. Um, it's not it's not something that's been around for you know thirty years. It's only recently really gotten its legs, and particularly with NMO, it's rare to do NMO specific training. A lot of people see NMO within the context of MS, but. Um, right. You know, and there's also issues around training where a lot of our um, residents, they see NMO as inpatients because a lot of our trainees are in hospitals for most of their training. And there's a lot of outpatient management that's actually the majority of NMO management. And so I think we need, just as an aside, I think we need some of the pharmaceutical companies to make NMO fellowships or NMO postdocs. And and to allow people to have that really specific training that they can go into other centers with and take it with them because it's not a guarantee you're going to get that in the usual 
four years right. away. Let's see. Right. Yeah, I, I know my PCP. I always just get really frustrated about it. Um, he'd be like, I got some medical students. Can they come in and see you first? And I was like, yeah, fine, whatever. Finally, after uh, after a couple appointments, he's like, listen, this is a chance for them to see something that they may never see again. It's, it's an extra five to 10 minutes, which is entirely up to you, but it helps them because that opens that door of the possibility that they may recognize something in the future and the advantages for, for another patient out there. Yeah. Like, Fine. Guilt me into it. <laughs> yeah, I know it's, you know, we, we depend on our patients to like partner with us in some ways right. and, the, and the education of NMO. And actually when I was a medical student, I saw somebody who had, uh, you know, I was doing a primary care rotation. It was my first rotation. And I saw somebody with, MS in retrospect it could have been NMO because it was before the antibody was diagnosed right. like, available and I was really inspired by the the person and the exam and um, how fascinating it was to be able to put together a diagnosis based on on the presentation of a patient and that's ultimately what led me to neurology so you never know you might be inspiring a future neuroimmunologist just by yeah talking exactly to exactly so, doesn't hurt when I was preparing for the episode, I had spoken to, with other patients to kind of get a sense of what their experiences were. And more than a few had brought up the idea that NMO and the impact it has on someone who was diagnosed young or before adulthood. And the concerns had ranged from challenges of being able to you know, get an education to being able to get employment, kind of aging out of essentially of their parents' insurance plans. Um, it's a really scary idea to think about. Do you have any thoughts on how age of onset plays a role in future opportunities and, and attainments? Yeah, in the qualitative work we did, um, there were some people who had pediatric onset NMO, and they did say that in those specific cases, they, you know, for example, were going to have a post-high school opportunity and it just got taken from them in some ways they just couldn't physically participate and after a while um, they just didn't catch up they never went and did that further education I think the earlier onset is a challenge and it probably does impact ultimate um, employment outcomes it also depends on as you're saying earlier like the time to diagnosis so some one person I recall said that they had one attack and that was surmountable, but then they didn't get the diagnosis uh, and treatment and then they got a second attack. And it wasn't the first attack, but it was the second one that really um, made it, there were multiple disabilities basically. And, and, mm -hmm. and that made it impossible for that person to go to college. And then we know that the longer you're out of school, the harder it is to catch up in any disease. So I think that's true. The pediatric onset cases are particularly challenging. And then also people who are hit with NMO during a college degree. And this is where some of the mitigating factors come in. Um, and also what the job is. Um, was the employer able to be flexible? Can you still make your work hours um, in spite of it? Or do you need to take time off? Do you need provisions? Is that job still the right job? Um, if it's you know physically demanding, Sometimes people say that they just couldn't do it, even mm -hmm. if they wanted to have the accommodations. Um, we do know from the survey-based work, which we did an interim report of at Actrums in February, 
that having more than 12 years of formal education um, is protective. So we compared people with college or above compared to below a high school level of education. And if you have a higher professional attainment, you're more likely to be employed long-term. So there's kind of, you know, it's really important for people with NMO to get that education because that will, you know, hopefully solidify their employment opportunities for life. If you never get to that point of full education, your chances get lower over time rather than higher. So we're still doing a lot of the analysis where we can adjust by certain other factors like um, ethnicity and race and age, et cetera. But we do know that uh, more than high school education, that opens your your opportunities up, particularly if you have certain physical right. impacts. Interesting. So there was one quote that really struck me. Someone had said that NMO was more than a CNS condition. It affects mental capacity. It's every piece of you. And it just like I said, it just, it, it hit me pretty hard. I think it's an important idea. You know, when we think of disability and, and challenges with what, with work, we go to those physical things, access issues, lifting, things of that nature. And in your paper, you talked about the mental health aspects and how it plays a significant role in someone's ability to return to the workforce. Can you give us a little bit more on that? I should say we were lucky to have very articulate people in the focus groups. And so the type of quote you just mentioned were you know exactly what people were telling me a lot of people talked about uncertainty and that they you know they may have great days and they may have really normal days um, if you will and they can do everything they used to do but there may also be days that are out of the blue not quite what they what they used to be and it may be very difficult for them to predict um, even until that day, whether they're going to have a right. great day or not. And so that's where things like return to the office and um, some of those things about planning ahead become very challenging. Um, there is a, a perception of stereotyping or stigma. And because we only ask the patients, we don't ask their coworkers or employers, mm-hmm. you know, we, we take people, so, you know, their real perceptions of their world is the most important thing that um, it's sometimes hard for them to get NMO out of their head. They may always be be thinking about in the back of their mind. And particularly during COVID, where most people with NMO are immunosuppressed in some form, where they um, weren't able to fully engage with some of the social activities or being in the office was more scary or more dangerous for some of those patients. Not all DMTs have this risk, but some of them do. Um, and at least at the beginning, nobody knew which ones were going to be more risky for COVID, which ones weren't. So those aspects of uncertainty were there too. And just like the stress of having to worry about something that other people don't have to worry about. A lot of people talked about bladder control and, um, you know, what happens if they have to urinate during the, during a meeting and fatigue came up as well, or medication side effects and just having to like even driving into work for some people was uncomfortable. So if they had to right. drive to work, you know, an hour or two already and their day was exhausted, um, but they hadn't even started work yet. So uh, so those are just, you know, we, we compiled all of the different aspects. Not everybody has each of those, but those are some of the things that came up. But I think it was just um, the uncertainty 
and the good news is a lot of our medications are are quite good uh, for NMO, but they're not perfect. And so there's still a little bit of worry that people have, you know, about a future attack. And I think it's even more pronounced early on when people don't know what their NMO is going to be like. Right. And, and you mentioned COVID. Obviously, it stressed the world economies and continues to, to stress the economies. And it was interesting to read about how it has affected NMO patients and their their return to the office or or return to the workforce. You know, during the pandemic, we we saw reports of the the number of people with disabilities who were able to obtain work because it was being done remotely. So it removed a bunch of barriers. And and I just had an interview a few weeks ago with someone and said that those numbers are kind of capping off as we're starting to see corporations and organizations start to recall people into work. And you're your research articulated how patients are going through those risk calculations, returning back to the office and the, the significant rise in stress that that comes with them. And it, it's nerve wracking because you need that money, you need the income, it's, it's tied to our insurance in this country. And yet you're, you're putting yourself into potentially uncomfortable and hazardous situations. And uh, I think the one person had spoken about got to get back to the office and get back to work, but you also don't want to go in and, and make waves. So to see how, uh, even though the, the pandemic is officially over, how that's a specter that's still looming over people, you know, the stigma of wearing masks and things like that. So I, I appreciated seeing that discussion in the in your research. Some of the other conversations that you had, uh, they were able to kind of verbalize some unmet needs. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Yeah, so we have a whole section dedicated to this. Um, and this was, I think, hopefully the more useful part of the paper in terms of actionable items. One major theme that came out was regarding education of the community and of employers. And MS has done an excellent job of as a community of educating the world, what is MS, who gets MS, what are the common um, impacts of MS, and MS is just a much more common disease. So NMO, because it is really a newly described entity, really in the last you know generation, if not less, it's not usual that people will understand what NMO is. And then a number of people said that if you Google NMO, uh, which is you know probably what most people do when they don't understand you know what a disease is. You get actually some old data about the high mortality of NMO and the extreme and severe nature of the disease. And even though that's true in some cases, um, the field has evolved and gotten much better in terms of therapeutic outcomes and uh, medications that are available and natural history studies are no longer applicable because we are treating NMO effectively. But if you go to Google, you may get this sort of out of date stuff. And so this was, um, this was felt to be a totally unmet need in terms of educating employers about actually people with NMO can do well. And, um, and it's not also like MS, which has a significant cognitive component to it. Um, so we often think of MS having a neurodegenerative component with um, significant fatigue and mood and cognitive deficits as part of part of the disease and NMO that's not necessarily true so giving up-to-date modernized accurate information as the top line kind of um, 
that seemed to be really something that is actually relatively easy and inexpensive to do, but not being done. So, and it maybe is direct as saying, you know, are you an employer or someone with NMO? Here's information for you. Because I think there is a lot of investment and interest from people, but if you're not getting good information when you seek it out, then, then you're no better off potentially. Other things that came up were talking about um, work from home accommodations and thinking about mobility and toileting, relief of pain and fatigue, um, issues around driving. And then um, if you are immunosuppressed in a vulnerable situation. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty about work from home versus return to the office. And um, immunosuppression is not one thing, right? They're multiple drugs. And so providing information on which drugs are actually um, the ones that are risky and which ones that aren't is, is useful. And I'd say in terms of return to the office, there's been an acceleration in use of telehealth and um, even just virtual meetings and, and generally like working from home. So even though there may be some return to office mandates, I think we're much better as a, uh, as a whole country now working from home and learning how to do right. hybrid work models. And without COVID, that probably wouldn't have happened as quickly. So um, so potentially um, there was a silver lining in the sense that uh, if somebody really does have to work from home or would really benefit from it, it wouldn't be as novel or extraordinary to be doing right. that. Um, a lot of folks talked about telemedicine and, you know, in my practice, we offer televisits and um, some of the rules around it. So in Massachusetts right now, um, we're allowed to do televisits for people in Massachusetts, but if you happen to be in New Hampshire or Vermont or Maine, then you actually have to drive in because um, it's really where, you know, we're licensed by state. And so a lot of patients reported, especially if they're living along the state lines or if they have to go to a, a different state for their health care, um, the benefits of televisits, if they exist, and some of the changing like legislation around that and how, if only some of that, those things during COVID could actually persist, they might actually have more time if you don't have to drive several hours into your apartment. Um, And then uh, we talked a lot about education at a college level and talking about um, curating job opportunities or even having discussions about what opportunities are really great for people with NMO or what jobs are out there that you think an NMO person could um, benefit from and thinking about which jobs are available for people with assistive technologies for writing and typing. And then we also talked about the pharmaceutical companies who have overall provided a lot of um, options for patients, but um, thinking about, as you said, the job and the health insurance are tied together. So if you wanna change your job, that can actually be a very stressful moment in people with neuroimmunological disorders, uh, particularly NMO. So if you're on a recurring infusion and you change jobs and you change health insurance, you know, what if you don't get your drug approved again? Or what if there's a gap in your medication? And that can be, you know, not worth the job change for a lot of patients if they can't stay on their medicine. So um, there's some discussion around how can you ensure that the medication continues? If there's, you know, can pharmaceutical companies provide like a bridge so that there's no gap in that um, transition? Because, you know, people with NMO, like everyone else, want to keep going in their careers and get those new opportunities. And then the last thing, I know we have a lot of unmet needs, but I'll just mention the last (laughs) thing that that came up was talking about how NMOSD is distinct from just general physical disabilities. 
and um, there seems to be a lot of knowledge about physical disability and but not what is unique about NMO and what can be done specifically in this condition how do you advocate specifically for NMO with you know symptomatic therapies improving those just in terms of tolerability and as you know, we don't have any FDA approved symptomatic therapies for NMO. So for like fatigue or pain, et cetera. So, you know, that's still an area of ripe um, need and, and future therapeutic development. And then there were a lot of this case by case examples, which I won't go into, but there's, um, it sounds like there's a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, absolutely. And you had mentioned about the idea of making sure that there's education that NMO is is distinct from MS, and I've used that the analogy a lot of times because it was so much easier to explain. Oh, it's like MS. I had never realized it until reading some of this discussion talking about how MS really has that stigma because it's such an aggressive disease, whereas NMO and, and MOG don't necessarily have that long-term degenerative effect. And someone who just Google's MS is going to have this very bleak um, kind of concept of it. We're putting ourselves into a category that the outcome is is different. And so I know I've stopped using the whole MS analogy. That was a real eye-opener for me. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, because MS is more common, most people can think of somebody they either grew up with or a family friend who has MS. And that field's changed quite a bit as well. Um, and so there may be cases of NMO and MS that look very similar. And is, if that you know person you're talking to remembers a specific case, that could exactly right. be the same thing. But at the same time, there are a lot of cases of advanced MS that predate the therapeutics that we have now. And then those tend to be really um, serious cases. A lot of NMO and MS can be silent. You may actually know someone with one of these conditions and not even know about it because mm-hmm. Um, they haven't disclosed and we get a little bit into that in the paper too like does your employer even know you have NMO and what when and whether and to tell tell people who to tell um so those issues come up quite a bit they come up in practice but yeah as you said NMO is really like a disease of attacks and our goal is to prevent those attacks and in MS it tends to have a slightly different you know long-term prognosis, um, right. which is quite wide. And so people have different preconceived ideas about what each of these things can be. Right. And you just talked about disclosing, which was also something that I found fascinating. It's obviously a very personal choice, but the number of people who chose not to disclose, what was their reasoning behind not disclosing it? Do you have any thoughts on, are there advantages to disclosing, not disclosing, yeah, I think, as you said, it's very personal and it will really depend on people themselves to feel out their situations and to make sure they're comfortable. I think we've heard across different neuro- neuroimmunological disorders that we know that some people's bosses aren't nice, um, just for lack of, it's not a scientific <laughs> issue, it's just some people are in situations where they, the more they share, it won't help them. And so they're often attuned to that and don't tell anyone unless they have to. Um, or there may be specific people that need to know. And, and the hope is that those people keep it confidential. 
And then there may be um, some people who just tell everyone and say, this is NMO and they want to educate people and they have kind of a, a, a trust that there'll be good faith um, reciprocity. Right. Um, and I think a lot of people don't disclose unless they feel that they have to or that it will make people understand in a way that's important. But I think a lot of patients, if they don't have to say anything, they may just not. Um, but there's not one, you know, there's not a one right answer and there's not one theme that prevailed here. So I think that um, it's as varied as each individual circumstance. And we see this clinically too, where people may tell one employer, they switch jobs, they don't tell the next one, they switch, they tell the next one. Right. And it may come up even during negotiations saying like, you know, I have to close this negotiation in this amount of time and make sure I get this health insurance because I need this drug. And some people right. really explicit. And, and if they can't get that health insurance clarification or, you know, the timing clarification will just turn down a job. So sometimes being explicit is really good because it gets you to where you need to go. But I wish, you know, I wish I could say everybody could disclose and it would be better for them, but I'm not sure that's the case yet. Yeah, maybe someday that'll, that'll be our reality, but hopefully we're moving in that direction. So at the beginning of the interview, you had talked about there has been similar type of work done in, in other diseases. So now that you are have gotten into the research of it with NMO, did you find any differences, any, any surprise findings? Um, did it kind of meet your expectations? How is it playing out big picture in comparison, do you think? Well, I should mention we are trying to do this survey globally. So um, in the U.S., we have about 100 respondents um, on our structured survey. And then globally, I think we're around 600 and some now. And our survey has been translated into probably 10 languages now, maybe more. So we're trying to really understand the global picture, which hasn't been done for a lot of diseases. So we may have like a sense of employment in Norway or U.K. or mm-hmm. Canada, you know, some of the higher income countries. And in a global sense, we really don't have that. So I think that'll be unique with NMO. I would say that NMO compared to other diseases, because it can present across the lifespan, some of the issues around pediatric onset portend that this is going to be a more serious impact than even MS in some patients, because MS tends to have a average age of onsets in the mid 30s. And most people, in terms of like the standard deviation, most people would present close to that time, 20 to 45 approximately. So pediatric onset is a small percentage. In NMO, I think we get, you know, people can present in their 60s or they can present when they're 10, you know, so they've got this whole heterogeneity. I think the other aspects are that there is a lot of um, pain and fatigue in NMO that turns out to be quite disabling, which hasn't really been quantified. So similar to MS, those are aspects of care that can be um, leading to unemployment. Uh, in terms of surprises, um, maybe not a surprise, but um, I think that we're seeing, you know, people of color and people, uh, you know, women are already disadvantaged in terms of employment in society. And that we, I can't say if it's going to be synergistic with NMO or not, but we do see that those same groups who are impacted by NMO or really impacted in terms of employment. And I think those 
those hits are going to be even harder in NMO right. because of the people of color being more predominantly affected. And, and we know from national statistics that people of color are really underemployed in the U.S. compared to white people. Um, yeah, I mean, we haven't, I guess, um, to be fair, we haven't fully analyzed all of the data from the global survey. So we don't know entirely what we're going to find when we analyze the final six, 700. I think one aspect that struck me globally is that women are just less educated than men in most societies still. And we, we know that, but to see that bear out in terms of numbers is actually still quite surprising when you look at low, lower income countries. Um, so already there is a lack of employment for women in many low-income countries and this is just exacerbating that problem um, the right. other thing that we looked at in the actrums poster which we didn't talk much about is caregivers and yes. a huge burden on caregivers and i think that can be true in ms and colitis and lupus and other diseases but in NMO, the impact on caregivers is particularly high um, and it would be often male caregivers because of the female predominance of the disease. And I guess when I um, put together this survey, I would have assumed that most caregivers would work less because they have to spend more time caregiving. But actually it went two directions. Some people were less because they needed that time, but actually a lot of people also work more. So they ended up taking on extra work and employment to try and compensate for the loss of work of um, people with NMO. So it wasn't necessarily the case that everyone just stopped working. It's almost like a, a more of a you or kind of a, a you know, bifurcation in what was mm -hmm. happening. So this is what they call like the tyranny of the average. So if you just look at the average, on average, people just kept working. But the truth is that many people stopped and many people increased. And so it looks like right. that change. So you really have to get into those subgroups. And then the other thing that we didn't talk too much about yet was just the income impact. So even though people with NMO may not lose their job entirely, they may significantly cut their hours or they may take jobs that pay less because they're more flexible. And so the actual financial impact um, for people working with NMO is, is present. So it's not that people get fired. That's not actually what happens. It's people are making choices that lead to different types of work and then taking a financial hit with that. Yeah, the, the poster, I apologize, we didn't get into that more. It was eye-opening and I was surprised also about the caretakers and that increased burden on them. Um, yeah, I mean, clinically we see some amazing caregivers. I mean, yeah. can't be enough about how dedicated and compassionate and really invested some caregivers are and it's extremely impressive um but you know we don't quantify that in clinic and you know animal research doesn't usually focus on those aspects of things it's much more focused on the antibody and so forth so it was sort of our privilege to be able to put some numbers onto these you know investments of, mm -hmm. of people's loved ones and try and really look at you know, the microeconomics beyond the patient. So trying to think a little bit more about household dynamics um, and and thinking about NMO is more of a, a societal issue rather than just a person by person one. 
right being a being a librarian so i'm very interested in in health literacy and science communication of it and which obviously revolves around the social determinants i was lucky so a lot of the work um really depends on funding so you know i've had these interests since medical school or even before in terms of social aspects of neurological care and vulnerable populations but it's only when funders take an interest that we're able to actually do the work because you know for the u.s survey we paid each participant to fill out a survey they took over 30 mm -hmm. minutes so um horizon therapeutics funded the u.s part of this survey and the Sumire Foundation mm -hmm. uh, funded the global aspects. And without them, it would have just been another idea that didn't get right. off the ground. Um, thankfully, the field is changing. You know, we're getting getting funders interested who, you know, are actually saying, okay, this is also worth doing, not just doing the, the usual stuff that we're doing, which is extremely important, but like thinking about right. as well. Um, so I'm lucky that the field's, evolve to a point where this is something that you know, people are taking an interest in yeah and when i had gotten involved and again this kind of side note the, the reason i i knew i wanted to do something within nmo advocacy i wasn't sure what it was and there, there's a few organizations and that was one of the things that drew me to the smire foundation was because it was king down the road at that cure but how do we make life a little bit easier and a little bit better for the people today that pragmatic approach to it, which your work is looking at that. Yeah, no, I think, you know, the, the day there's a cure for NMO is not the day that the world will be cured of NMO. You know, we have some of the work that we didn't talk about, but just thinking about availability, accessibility, and affordability and all the implementation yeah. and the health delivery aspects. There's a lot of people, and I just wrote a a paper on this is a lot of people who have NMO that don't even know they have NMO and they don't know what NMO is and they're often in low-income countries they are often mm -hmm. low literacy and they know that they've got visual loss they know they can't walk but it doesn't you know and so we're in this part of the world where we have great treatments and we can choose yeah. between them and then there's this whole part of the world that has never had antibody tests never had an MRI and yeah. It's usually a young woman who's got a lot of uncertainty about her future. And so I think the Samaya Foundation and others have understood this conundrum of the science plus all of the, the public health and the health delivery that needs to happen in order for the science to be realized. Yeah, we need to look into like health literacy with patients. We need to know where they're getting their information, what they're understanding, what they're taking away. Okay, last question that I have for you. Yeah. The, the work that you've done is incredibly important and it's going to be a great launching point. So what's the next step in this area of research? Yeah. So in terms of employment, I think that we're trying to still understand what helps patients and if some of these can be codified into practical points for employers to have like a handout online or even to have something that people can read quickly and that would be something just like a bite-sized piece that could happen in terms of social determinants of health a ton needs to be done so I'm very interested in what are the social determinants of health that are relevant to NMO so you know there's CDC and WHO guidance on what social determinants of health are but it's not the case that every variable is important in NMO. Some might be, some might not be. 
Um, so trying to refine this down into the population of interest, I think needs to be done. And actually, I, I'm very interested in including this in clinical trials. So animal clinical trials are getting published. We don't really know a lot about their unique social determinants of health. We may get race in some cases, but we may not. Um, but we don't know anything about their their situations and how our real world experience will compare to the clinical trial participants. And I think there's a lot to be learned uh, in terms of extrapolating the published science into the real world. So I think that needs to be done at a better level too. And um, we do know that there's delays in diagnosis and treatment. Who are these people? What was it about them? And how can we prevent that in their future? And I'm very interested as well in point, point of care diagnostics. So we didn't talk about that very much, but if you think you have NMO, can you do a finger prick test and try and get the aquaporin for antibody um, tested? So we did a small project on that. And there's a few more tests like that um, going on with collaborators, both at Mass General and now at Mayo Clinic. Um, but I think, you know, the goal would be no person goes without clarity on their their diagnosis. That would be the long-term um, strategy, which is achievable. It's just a matter of money. Amazing. So much good stuff. So many great takeaways. I appreciate you taking the time. Where could people reach you to, to find out more? Yeah. So a um, couple ways. Um, my my information is all online. So it's on Harvard Catalyst or Mass General. I have a webpage. I have a research group webpage. It's called the Global Neurology Re- Research Group. I'm on Twitter and also um, the paper that we spoke about that's open access online. It is called Understanding the Employment Impact of Neuromyelitis Optica Spectrum Disorder in the USA Mixed Methods, and it's published in Frontiers in Neurology in March, and it's free open access, so you can read all the nitty-gritty if you're interested. <laughs> it's, uh, actually, the paper was I usually our papers are supposed to be about 3000 words, but I had so much to write here. I ended up well over 5000 words. So we ended up taking a journal that would allow that length of paper because I didn't have the heart to cut it down. So there's more than 5000 words available if you're interested. (laughs) It is really good stuff, though. And I think there's so much important information in there. It's really going to do a lot of good and get a lot of people thinking. So thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll talk to you in the future. Thank you. My pleasure.